And if you have your Bible with you this morning, you can turn to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 9 is what we will be looking at this morning. The third book of the New Testament. A shorter passage this morning. So if you don't have your Bible with you, you can just listen along. As we look together at Luke chapter 9, verses 28 to 36. If you would please give your attention to the reading of God's Word. The Word of the Lord is completely without error. The Word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the Word of the Lord is completely sufficient. Luke chapter 9, beginning at verse 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses And Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter, (coughs) now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents. One for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. and They were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son. My chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Well, have you ever asked yourself what the height of faith would be? You know, we talk about the Christian faith and our faith. Have you ever wondered what the height of the expression of your faith might be? For some of us, that conjures up images of going into the remotest places of the world, deepest, darkest Africa, and bringing the gospel to those who have never heard it in dangerous places and seeing incredible changes that God would do. For others of us, perhaps a bit more homebound, we think that the height of faith would be biblical and theological study. So we dig deep into our Bibles and we understand so many things and we look and study into all sorts of theology, filling our minds with the great truths of God's Word. Then there are those of us who tend more toward a service. And we think that the height of faith would be helping those who are around us, widows and the sick and the infirm, those who need our assistance on a day-to-day basis. And we think that could be the height of our faith. 
Well, in truth, although each of these things is a good aspect, an expression of our faith in Christ, I think as Luke describes to us this morning, none of them are the height of our faith. For you see, the height of a believer's faith in Jesus is to know and see Jesus as He truly is in all of His glory. And when we know the Lord Jesus Christ in all of His glory, then we are all the more eager to serve, all the more eager to study, all the more eager to bring the Gospel. For you see, Jesus is the fountain of everything that we are. And that's why Luke takes a few moments here in the midst of chapter 9, kind of pausing in the story to show us the glory of Jesus Christ on the mountain. Well, let's begin then by looking and seeing the first and most basic thing from this passage that was read. And that is, what happened on the mountain? What's going on here in this story as Peter and James and John go with Jesus And there's Moses and Elijah and a cloud and God speaking and Jesus changing His clothes. And what's going on with all of this? I think the basic thing that you should grab onto is that Jesus is giving us a glimpse into reality. Now, you have to understand that as we look around, we're not seeing reality. No, no, I'm not trying to tell you that somehow you're lost in the matrix. What I mean is, is the world that we look at is not really the way it's supposed to be. It's been marred by sin. And even the Jesus that we see here, for the most part in the first nine chapters of Luke, is not the real reality of who Jesus is. We see and understand and know that He is fully man, but He is also fully God. And so... This morning in Luke 9, Luke pulls back the veil a bit to give us a glimpse into exactly who Jesus is. Now, remember the context of where we are. Just recently, in verse 20, Jesus has announced that He is the Christ. Remember, Jesus' last name is not Christ. He is Jesus the Christ the anointed one, the one sent of God. And Jesus has just told them His own future. In verse 22, that He would suffer and be killed and rise again. And as a matter of fact, He's just told the disciples their future. In verse 23. And it's not exactly rosy, is it? It's that they would have a cross each and every day that they would bear. So now, Jesus calls Peter and James and John and they go up onto the mountain. We see here now the first time in which Jesus begins with this inner circle of Peter and James and John. And He is going to give them encouragement and the ability to lead He wants to explain to them exactly what it means that He is the Christ. And He wants to give them great hope in the midst of the news that they have just heard. He is developing their leadership. 
You will also note, just as we said last week, that whenever Jesus goes about a significant item, a significant event in his life, he sets it apart by prayer. Do you see that? Once again, he does this. And he takes them up onto this mountain, and again, his face begins to change. It becomes other. Luke tells us in the, in the Greek. It is transfigured. It becomes different than what it was before. And even his clothing is changed from the ordinary and the everyday into clothing of brilliant, dazzling white. So bright that it hurts your eyes to look at. Now, we have to understand what's going on here. It is not that Jesus is becoming a different person. It is not that the Disciples will not recognize Him. It is not that He is becoming other than He was. He is simply pulling back the veil of His humanity and we see Him now as He really is. Glorious in His being. Brilliant in His holiness. This is the Jesus who walked among us. He veiled His glory and His brilliance to do the work that His Father gave Him, that He might do the work of His life and death and redeem for Himself a people. The glory of God is now shining briefly in Jesus. There is only one kind of glory like this. In the Old Testament, they called it the Shekinah glory. It was the visible presence of God. And it was a glory that was brilliant and resplendent. Moses experienced a similar glimpse. You may remember in the Old Testament, Moses begged God, please let me see your glory. And God said, in effect, you can't handle my glory. But let me tell you what I will do. I will take you and put you in the rock. That's where the line from the hymn comes, the cleft of the rock. He was hidden in the cleft of the rock and he said, I will cover you with my hand and as I pass by, you can see the backside of my glory. In other words, you can see the remnants of my glory after I go by. We get a real picture of how glorious God is that Moses does indeed see the remnants of God's glory, and as a result, for 40 days and 40 nights, he does not need to eat or sleep or drink. He works writing down God's law. And then after 40 days, he comes down and meets with the people of Israel, and they are blinded by the 40-day-old reflection of God's glory in Moses. Do you remember? They wonder what has happened. It's kind of like perhaps when you were a kid, you might have played a game with your friends or you wanted to see how long you could look at the sun because the sun is brilliant and beautiful. And you would stare at it, try not to blink, and your eyes would water and they would hurt. And Finally, you'd pull away and you'd shake your eyes. And then what would happen? Spots everywhere, right? Because you see, our eyes are not meant to see that kind of brilliance. So it is here with God and with Jesus. You see, in our sinful human selves as we are, we are not built to take the full glory of God. It's God's mercy that for now He veils it somewhat, giving us glimpses, 
knowing that we are to be brought to a place in glory in which we will be like Jesus, that we will be able to gaze upon His glory in full. There is no glory like this. It's the glory that Moses saw the back of. It's the glory that filled the tabernacle as the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. It was a glory that was perhaps described best in the Old Testament in the temple. You remember the great building that was built that God might put His name there and He might dwell there as it were. In Second Chronicles 7, we hear it described in this way. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped God and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. This is the great glory of God. It is a far cry from how we often describe to ourselves God in such colloquial terms as the big guy upstairs. We picture him as a a kindly grandfather. We picture him as like us, but just perhaps a bit taller, a bit older, and a bit grayer. That's not who God is. God is so glorious that to be in His presence fills us with shock and fear and awe. This is who Jesus is. There's only one glory like this. And the sad part of our story is that the glory had departed from Israel after the temple was destroyed. The people of Israel had rebelled against God. They had gone away from Him. They had sinned. They didn't want anything to do with Him. They thought God was boring. They thought that they were so much better than all of the things God had wanted them to do. And God left them and the glory left the temple and left the land and there was a tangible void. But now... The great story of the Bible is that the glory of God has come back to earth. Not in a building, not in a cloud, but in the person of Jesus Christ. The glory of God is here and He is here to stay. Now, this is what's happening, a glimpse of reality on the mountain. But what else is going on? Who is there? Well, we see Moses... And Elijah, two great figures from the Old Testament. Moses, the great lawgiver. The one who was perhaps the preeminent of all God's spokesmen. The prophet's prophet. And Elijah, the great miracle-working prophet who called down fire and raised the dead. (coughs) The great hope-bringer the one whom the people of God were waiting to come back to know the Lord was on His way. What does it mean that we see them there? Well, there's two very practical, immediate benefits for you and for me. The fact that they are there tells us the very truth from God's Word that this life is not the end. There is life after death. 
Moses, back from the dead. Elijah, back from being called into heaven. And better than that, there is life after death in which we retain our personalities and we have relationships with others and we have a relationship with God. Oh, what great hope there is. It seems that every day, all I do is listen to people who try and convince me that there's no hope and I should want there to be no hope. I should want to be nothing more than a collection of atoms. I should want there to be nothing beyond the grave. But the Bible, the truth of God's Word, says that is a lie. That there is indeed life after death. And we see here Moses, the great lawgiver, and Elijah, the great miracle hope bringer. And they're both just shadows. Do you see that? Because you see, Jesus is the ultimate lawgiver. And Jesus is the ultimate hope bringer. They are there to be with Jesus and it is very clear who is the most glorious. Luke tells us that they, they talked. And, and the way he says it, it's that they've talked for a while. The verb that's used, this is not a quick conversation. This is, they wanted to talk to Jesus as much as they could. And the question then comes, what did they talk about? Well, we might start by thinking what we might have talked about on the mountain. I can imagine in my mind, if if I were on a mountain with Moses and Elijah, I'd want to ask things like, what's it like to part the Red Sea? Really, really, which was the scariest of the plagues? What was it like to have a whole bunch of people for 40 years whine and moan and complain to you? How did you not go crazy? Or I might go to Elijah and say, what was it like when the fire came down from heaven and consumed the wood? What was it like to bring someone back from the dead? But you see, that's not what they spoke of. Because as grand as those things were, Moses and Elijah weren't interested in that. The only thing they wanted to talk about was Jesus and His mission and what He would accomplish. Do you see that? It's a lengthy discussion, but it's all about Jesus' departure. You see, they want to know because Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that they did, everything that they were about, all that they had heard, Jesus was the fulfillment. And Luke tells us this in a wonderful play on words that that you miss a little bit because it's in English. When they say, your departure, the Greek word is actually, for departure, is exodus. Could you imagine Moses walking up to Jesus, walking up to anyone and saying, could you tell me about your exodus? But you see, that's how great and grand Jesus is. They want to know about what He is doing, what He has done, and the fulfillment of everything they have longed for. This is what's happening on the mountain. And then we turn the camera pans, as it were, to the disciples. And we were worried that they're going to miss all of this because in typical fashion, they're asleep. It's almost as if When Jesus says, let's pray, they hear, let's take a sleeping pill. Have you noticed that? There's no quicker way to get Peter and the disciples to go to sleep than to say, let's pray. 
I don't know if that would work at home with your children, but you could try it. And you see, then they're asleep, but they before Moses and Elijah leave, they wake up, and you can imagine them coming to themselves and rubbing their eyes. Are we still in a dream? What is this? And they see the glory of Jesus, and they see Moses, and they see Elijah. Do you see how gracious God is to them? God didn't let them sleep through this glory. He woke them up so that they could see this great sight. And they don't know what to do. And again, somewhere in the job description of disciple is fall asleep while praying and put your foot in your mouth. Usually Peter. And you see Peter looks and you can just imagine what's going on here. The sight is unbelievable. And there's a quiet and a hush. And Peter doesn't know what to do. And you know the the cliche, nature abhors a vacuum? Well, Peter abhors a silence. He does not like when things aren't being said. And he's afraid that if he doesn't do something, the spell is going to be broken and he's going to lose what's going on here in the mountain. And he looks at Jesus and he tries to come up with anything that he can think of. You can almost imagine him stumbling over himself. Um, 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 Lord, oh, I've got this great idea. Let's build three tents. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. What do you say? That would be good, right? Now, at first, this sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Peter wants to honor them. He wants to honor Jesus and Moses and Elijah. But I think this is a wonderful example to us of the truth found in the old hymn. That we dare not trust our sweetest frame, but only wholly lean on Jesus' name. Because you see, Peter's intentions are good. His heart's in the right place, we might say. But he's completely butchered it. Here is Jesus with Moses and Elijah, and it's very clear who is the greatest. It's very clear that Moses and Elijah wish to understand and be with Jesus, and now all of a sudden Peter wants to put them all on the same level. What foolishness! Because if you push your eyes up just a few verses, it's just a few verses ago that Peter says, Oh Lord, you're not Elijah, you're not any old prophet, you are the Christ. Did he forget? I think he might have. But you see, the truth of the matter is, there is no one like Jesus. It doesn't matter what anyone else tells you. Jesus is unique. There is none like him. There's another thing, I think, a mistake that Peter is making. He's mistakenly clinging to what's going on here. He doesn't want the mountaintop experience to end. The good news is, Peter knows something good is going on here, and he wants it to continue. The bad news is, he simply wants to stay here in this spot. Now, you know what that's like, don't you? We see this in our own lives. We look at our children and we say, oh, if we could only freeze it. We blink and they get so big. We might think of the best week of vacation we've ever had and think, why can't all the time be like this? But you see, the reality is, is that God doesn't want us to stay in one place 
He's decreed all of our steps. We can't walk the Christian walk. We can't live the Christian life trying to cling on to experiences that we think were good or helpful. We must push forward. We must do the task that has been given to us. We must follow the Lord Jesus Christ as He leads us. Because you see, if we don't, we are disobeying God. You see, Peter wants to stay here because the experience is incredible. He can't imagine anything better than seeing the glory of Jesus. But the problem is, he's not listening to what's going on. You remember what Moses and Elijah are talking to Jesus about. His departure. His going to Jerusalem. You see, Peter unwittingly is seeking to stop Jesus from fulfilling what he is to fulfill. Peter sees the glory... And he knows that Jesus has told him he will suffer. And his mentality is the mentality that we so often have, which is we need to get a bunch of this glory so that we are ready to face the suffering. We want glory now, and then we'll suffer. But Jesus says that's not the way. It's not just not the way for you. It's not the way for Jesus. You see, the suffering comes first, and then the glory follows. Jesus had just told him this in verse 22 and in verse 23. He just told them that he was to suffer. He just told them that they were to suffer. He tells them, you've got the order mixed up. And this is so often the case for us in our lives here in America today. There are so many people and churches and preachers that will tell you that really if you've got Christianity right, your bank account will be full, your cars will be gorgeous, your homes will be big. But that's not what Jesus said. He didn't say, follow me so you could become rich and happy and wealthy. He said, follow me. You will know forgiveness of sins. And glory to follow. This has got Peter all confused. But praise be to the Lord God that He doesn't leave Peter and us confused. The third thing that comes up on the mountain is what God declared. Do you see it here? At verse 35... A voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my Son, my Chosen One. Listen to Him. God declares who Jesus is. He doesn't leave us to ourselves. He doesn't leave us to figure it out, to stumble around. No. Can you imagine how much trouble it would be to try and figure out on our own what is going on? How could we parse all of the things about Jesus and creation and ourselves and our sin and our relationships and our lives? You may have tried that. You may be trying that now. It's hard work, isn't it? It's a mess, isn't it? That's why God's given us His Word. You don't have to figure it out on your own. There's no bonus points for figuring it out on your own. We go to God's Word. God speaks. And it is actually more real than what we see. 
Do you notice that? Now, Peter has just had this experience. He has seen Moses and Elijah. He's seen Jesus in His glory revealed. And Peter later recounts a story of this incident to people in his church. He writes it actually down in a letter to them. It's the second letter he writes to them. So, very originally, we call it 2 Peter. And in 2 Peter, chapter 1 and verse 19 After he has described the glory of this scene, he says, and we have the prophetic word more sure to which you would be well to pay attention. He says, I've just described for you this, but let me tell you what's more sure than what I've seen with my own eyes. It's what God says in his word. That's what you hold on to. Your eyes will deceive you. Your heart will play tricks on you. The worst piece of advice for anything in your life is the advice you get from Hollywood that says, follow your heart. Don't. Follow God and His Word. And you see, the Lord here says, this is my Son. He tells us that Jesus is God. That's why we see His glory. He is the beloved Son of the Father. There is none like Him. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. J.C. Ryle puts it this way in describing the scene. He says, Moses and Elijah were the king's servants. But Jesus was the king's son. Moses and Elijah were planets. But Jesus is the son. They were witnesses, but He is the truth. There is none like the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God, God Himself. But more than that, we see that Jesus is the chosen one of the Lord. He is the chosen servant of the Father. This servant that is described in greater detail in Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53. The servant who was chosen to suffer. And we see here that what God is doing by saying this is He is confirming all that Jesus has said, that it is true. Essentially, what what God is doing, one commentator has said, is that God wanted to talk about the same thing that Moses and Elijah wanted to talk about. The departure of Jesus and the glory that would follow. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Chosen One. But do you see the critical last part of what God says? Listen to Him. You see, this is the most critical part for us. Because it's how we become able to know who Jesus is. It's how we know anything. We listen to Jesus. Do you want to know about salvation? Listen to Jesus. He's the one who says, no one comes to the Father except through me. He's the one who says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Do you need comfort and promises? Then listen to Jesus. For He's the one who says, Come to Me, all you 
You who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus is the one who comes and speaks to you and tells you you can have forgiveness of sins by faith in Him. Jesus is the one who comes to you and says that He will never abandon you, never forsake you. We must listen to Jesus. For you see, it is when we listen to Jesus that we see His glory. It is when we listen to Jesus that we understand who He is and who we truly are. Do you long to reach the highest heights of faith? Do you long to have your right, your life taken from off kilter to be put straight? Do you long to have hope and confidence? And the Father tells us, Luke tells us, look to Jesus and listen to Him. He is God's Son. He is God's chosen one. He is the one that was given that you might trust in Him and know the forgiveness of sins and the glory that follows. Let's pray.